So Star Wars without the Force. Yeah, that's fine. It could be... (laughs) Which George Lucas effectively did in the second trilogy. (laughs) It's not magic. They're mitochondria in your cells. That one fell swoop. George Lucas turned the beloved franchise into Dragon Ball. He has a huge number of these in his cells. He is very powerful. Ah, George. Our guest was so quiet this time. I don't understand why. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I said ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, Just the puns. Uh, like I uh, said, everything I said. <laughs> an antagonist that doesn't have an intelligence behind it, you know? Space sharks or the like. Sharks <laughs> in space. They must have lasers in their head. What no, do you mean no. we don't have any space sharks? What do we do have? Space bass. Are they ill-tempered space bass? I like the idea of space sharks. We'll figure something out for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to regret that. Welcome to Crucible of Realms. I'm Jim. I'm John. And I'm Kent. And our guest today is Darren Kennedy. Hello, sir. Hello. Hello. Darren is a friend of mine from a writer's group that I participate in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, By day, I'm a family physician, so I spend roughly 10 hours a day taking care of folks. I get Thursday afternoons off to catch up on paperwork, and then when I get home at night, I spend a lot of time working on two different novels. One's a contemporary fantasy, and one's a paranormal mystery, and I'm kind of alternating back and forth, getting work done on those. My contemporary fantasy is currently done, and I'm trying to market it to various literary agents and publishers with minimal success to date. Ah, but hopefully that shall turn around. As I've seen some of your work, it's awesome stuff. Someone will take note. Someone will take mm-hmm. note soon. God willing. As of this episode, I also just wanted to note that we're starting to get comments. On episode 7, Neptune's Reich, we got a couple of comments. One from Shades of Eternity, who gave us a lot of very helpful info about Europe and Africa and Asia, and basically all the various World War II factions and their arcane interests and whatnot, and so that was very cool. Then we also got another comment from White Ghost Bear, who had glowing praise for us, and it was very kind, and so thanks, folks, for commenting on that. On any episode that comes out, you can always do comments at the end. Uh, You can just click the comment thing and put comments on it, and we always appreciate it. We still do not have very much in the way of iTunes reviews yet, so if anyone wants to go on there and comment, then that is always welcome as well. But enough of this, Falderall. Let us build worlds. So what kind of world do we want to build today? Anyone have any thoughts, any things we can develop off of? I was hoping we could do like a space uh, technology one. As I am deep into Star Wars, I've got the itch to do something like that. So something that's kind of closer to hard sci-fi, that kind of thing? Yep. So do we want to do like an Earth's future thing, or do we want to do a distant place type thing? Distance place. What kind of uh, scale are we wanting to look at here? Do we want to focus on like an entire galaxy, or do we want to do... Just like a, a cluster of solar systems, or a single solar system, or a single planet, or even zoom in on that and do like a single area on a planet. Uh, how big do we want to go in this one? I would say I don't see like projectiles in combat or anything like that. So they've gone far beyond. They've got energy weapons. 
sonic weapons, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we need to be farther along the evolutionary chain than someone just discovering how to get out into space. It might have to encompass a couple of solar systems. Interstellar. Yeah. So they have interstellar travel. Are we going to focus in on one main civilization, or do we want to do multiple civilizations? I think we need to do a couple of them. I think they're trying to form kind of like a um, where the planets are trying to get together and kind of converge under one umbrella, but there's like three or four factions that don't want that to happen or maybe two factions. Okay. So we're forming like a federation. Something like that. They're wanting to form a federation, yep. How many races do we want to focus on for this? Uh, I know we'll need at least two. Do we want to just do uh, these two or the main ones that are coming together or are there more than two? Well, I could see like six races altogether, six species. But half of them want to form a federation. So now you've got the other three that are kind of not really wanting to form anything, but they're against one another, that sort of thing. Okay, so three, quote-unquote, protagonist races that we'll Mm -hmm. focus on, and then there are three additional antagonist races we may want to fill in some stuff about. There you go. Okay. Do these three races, so they're kind of local to each other uh, as far Mm. as their home solar systems, are they, or are they far away from each other? I would think they're not a considerable distance, but like at least one of the antagonists are between them. Let's put it that way. Okay. So maybe it's something where there's a common area of space Mm -hmm. that uh, might encompass a number of solar systems. There you go. That these three races often find each other in. So, three races. Who wants to throw out an idea for one? I was thinking Insectoid. Kind of like Calaclack from the Micronauts. Oh, cool. That was one of the best comic series from the 80s by far. Yep. 70s and 80s, actually. What kind of insect are we saying here? I was thinking uh, ants. Hmm. Okay. How much like ants do these things look? Is it like an ant walking on hind legs, or does it even walk on hind legs? What do you think these ant people would look like? I think they're big, but not like human-sized big, but maybe like... The thing with insects is whenever they do movies like them, and they have the enormous insects, they just don't work because the exoskeleton on a 3 millimeter scale does not work on a 20-foot scale. Right. Cube square law. Yeah, exactly. So I would say we can have them be big old bugs. Big old bugs can exist, but I would say let's keep it within reason. Okay. And I think they communicate telepathically. Okay. Is it a collective consciousness? Is there a a cast? Because in our world, the single ant is basically a robot. It's just a machine. It's only when you consider the whole colony (laughs) that you actually get anything that looks like an intelligence. They call that emergence, where an intelligence emerges out of a group. Kind of the hive mind philosophy. Right, right. I mean, that's exactly what the idea is, yeah. So are we doing that with these guys, or are these guys more individuals? I think sticking to the hive mind would be better. Okay, so maybe when you go to a meeting with this race, you actually end up going to a meeting with like three of them, or at least you know there's always a certain number of them around when you uh, talk to them because they have less distinct personal identities. And as someone that used to live in Georgia and had to deal with fire ants, those things are just spreading and spreading, and I'm wondering if our ant agonists are not the ants. <laughs> uh, That's bad. All right, so we have an ant-like species. We have an ant-like species. Do we want it to be one of the uh, protagonists or one of the not-protagonists? Thanks, Jim. <laughs> uh, I think that, that they're definitely... Looking out for you, man. The, they're <laughs> definitely the antagonists. One of the three antagonists, yeah. Okay. Anyone have any ideas for another type of race we can throw out here? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about liquid people? Do they okay. take humanoid shape? or? I think maybe they can. They can be like poured into molds. <laughs> and uh, 
<laughs> That's kind of how they uh, get around when they're talking with other species. It would be kind of like, uh, well, it's also, again, almost like a shared consciousness thing again, but I'm kind of thinking from a different angle. They're like super intelligent bodies of water. Interesting. Yes, I have no idea how the science would the, work on that. The but, bigger uh, the body of the water, the more the smarter the hmm. collection. Yes. But, so if you uh, had a big lake, it might be a genius, and if it's a puddle, it's a dog or a cat or something. Are they colony organisms that happen to live in water and animate the water around them? There you go. Kind of yeah. like microorganisms that all kind of communicate through chemical and they keep water around them so they can assume shape and motivate without having to travel under their own power, maybe? That's not go. a bad idea. That's their medium of existence, I guess. So, yes, they have these suits where there are a bunch of tiny people inside of them, <laughs> uh, basically. It's one of those things, but it's uh, but they're actually... Uh, and the suit's filled with water. Yeah, water or some other liquid, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything that can live in mercury, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Ooh, uh, that would be interesting. Maybe they have different functions based on the type of liquid that they're in. Maybe. Maybe they uh, occasionally have conflicts with other elements, as it were. I do not know chemistry well enough to really put anything too specific on this, but I was thinking maybe that these are creatures that inhabit mercury. Okay. And so if you're meeting with one and their container breaks, then you best back away. Or get a big magnet. (laughs) They'd be totally screwed in a magnetic field. Yeah. Stupid question. Is mercury magnetizable? I don't remember. Yeah, it's totally... You can pick it up with a magnet. I did that once. That's cool. I was was young and stupid. (laughs) Because that's very dangerous, you know. I'm thinking that maybe these guys... Are it's not exactly that they're telepathic, but it's something probably close enough to it that it makes no difference. If they talk to one another... Since these are like microorganisms now, as we're thinking of it, they'd have to be able to communicate with each other over great distances. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking maybe there's something they can do to the liquid in which they are present to make it so that they're all like one thing, almost. They can learn to operate as a unit. Organized units can form and decide, okay, we're all going to go in this direction. And then to a certain extent, they can actually control the liquid. So that's why it's like if they concentrate, they can control the liquid and make it do different things. Mm-hmm. Now, how these species would get to the point that they've developed interstellar travel, I'm not completely sure, but does Mercury freeze? Can it solidify? Oh, yeah. Uh, I actually they, think it would freeze in space, actually. So I'm just thinking maybe the way these things evolved, they got to the point that they got used to working in concert. They got used to being able to detach bits of themselves from the greater group to go off and do things as these various, maybe even walking bodies of water, as it were. So when they emerged from the ooze, it was actually the ooze emerging from the ooze, carrying these creatures with it, because they were commanding it, they were driving it to go and to do things. And ultimately, over time, maybe they figured out things closely enough that they could go ahead and build stuff, and as a result, society formed. How did they get their first mold? Uh, Early on, it was probably, uh, you know, rocks, things like that. How do they even perceive creatures of a different... If you're a Mercury creature and suddenly appear on the Earth, you know, do you have eyes? Do you have ears? How do you see or hear? I'm thinking almost it's going to have to be some kind of uh, psychic-like thing that's going on. They can sense around them on some wavelength where they're able to perceive stuff that's there. It's the same thing that lets them communicate over great distances. Mm -hmm. The whole theory in the movie Contact was that the aliens 
were not physically going across long distances, but they were communicating over long distances. And so maybe the Mercury folk don't technically leave their planet, but they send their consciousness out. And maybe that's why people have come to their planet. But I'm having real trouble figuring out how Mercury Ooge that is kind of like wandering around, how they're going to build any kind of a ship to get off their planet. Well, we were talking about them getting to the point that they can affect the molecular structure of their host liquid to the point that perhaps they can make (coughs) solid bodies that can pick up and use tools, either through freezing or maybe they create something that's maybe over time they figure out how to add other elements to they'll create something that maybe has like the consistency of rubber as the outer skin. Maybe they have it worked out to the point that it's not necessarily that they're in special suits that are mechanical or what have you in nature, but they're just special skins that they've formed at the edges yeah. uh, so that they can touch things. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. Does that sound useful at all? Sure. I'm assuming they've had like millions of years to perfect this already. So I was thinking maybe they've found a way to create a communication array first. Maybe now they are kind of just transmitting stuff to uh, other races through something that just amplifies their natural communication abilities. And so if you go down to their planet, you can walk around and talk to them, and it's very dangerous shaking hands. But (laughs) But otherwise, they will project something that looks, I guess, maybe however they want it to look. They can possibly project images of themselves so that if other races have, say, like hologrammatic technology or something like that, then you could actually have virtual diplomats walking around, that kind of thing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Do we want to put them in the protagonist bin? Yes. Or do we? Okay. The Mercury folk, Mercurials, whatever it is we're going to call them. Now, let us have another race. I'm thinking something on the Dune line of people who can fold space. Mm hmm. Ooh. But with less technology and more they've come up with some way to warp space psychically but you still have to come up with some physics methodology that says they can connect two points two density points you know two stars actually so they're a fairly weak race but when it comes to travel they excel beyond the others right that's what i was thinking is that they probably couldn't on their own go outside their own solar system but because they've come up with some method something that they've cultivated it could even we could even introduce some sort of magic or well as they say sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic you said that they have trouble getting outside of their own solar system what do they use within their solar system do they see a planet and then they decide that they're going to be there and then they step forward and they're there is that how that works or no i don't think that they i think that to move inside their own solar system they have to use almost conventional rocket kind of technology reaction mass kind of where you burn an energy source to accelerate yourself there but paradoxically to go many light years they warp the space they've learned to connect two high density points in space so let me ask you you, only do it around two stars probably there you go i guess are we going with that they're humanoid um but that's not necessarily true I don't have a problem with these things being roughly humanoid. If it's a natural ability, though, it is something they would have had to have evolved. So that does put it toward a suggestion of making them maybe having some mobility issues. I don't think they can use it to go inside their... In my mind, it really takes linking two really big mass concepts. Okay. So it really would have to be stars or a black hole or something pretty huge to link up. So So it's something where they can naturally tap into these energies in some way. Right. Uh, 
these energies. Maybe sources. maybe there was something on their planet that kind of gives them the ability to manipulate radiation in such a way that they're linking these two points in space. But I think they have to do it really close to a solar body. Well, what if they come from some kind of dimensional nexus? Or, well, not even a dimensional nexus, but maybe they come from somewhere, a point in space where there's, like, some kind of strange sort of gateway type thing. A weakness in the fabric? Yes. Maybe it's like that they're uh, from some place that they're exposed to that all the time. And as a result, they know how to bend space because it's part of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it doesn't really necessarily matter how they look then. I've got a picture in my head of maybe like, I can't even describe the picture in my head. Isn't that terrible? Large heads. That's all I'm thinking of right now is that they've got like maybe large craniums. Maybe they're kind of gangly. So like the typical gray alien or gray alien. Yeah. Maybe kind of like that, but taller. Uh, it's kind of like take one of those and stretch it out. To how tall? Um, uh, might I go like eight foot? They yeah. don't have a lot of meat on their bones. Yeah. Maybe they're they all cartilage. Yeah, yeah, they're all cartilage. Maybe their appendages are based on kind of a rule of three instead of a rule of two. Ah. There you go. That's World okay. of the World right there. Yeah, kind of like World of the Worlds a little yeah, bit. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So three feet, three hands. Three eyes. Yeah, three eyes. They're probably in the protagonist. Yeah. Sure. But I think but, that, yeah, it's like they look scary but they're actually quite peaceful, I well, think. Well and there would be maybe some conflict that some of the other races might see a lot of potential to abuse their abilities. Oh, of course. Because it's the perfect invasion methodology where you put all your ships together over here, many light years away, and then these guys just move your ships into that other solar system, bam, with nobody ever seeing them coming. Yeah. Agonist, definitely. Yeah. And for some reason, I think that maybe they're, like, slightly fuzzy. They have, like, some kind of short fur on them, which can range from maybe uh, black to brown to maybe into the blues. Okay. They have a, a generally a democracy, I think, of some sort. Here's your plot. If the ants are doing what ants are want to do and they like to spread, perhaps these warp-traveling furry eight-foot-tall gangly dudes showed up on the ant planet, and the ants were like, sure, we'll be your friends. And now they're wanting to utilize their teleportational-esque technology to go to other planets, because once they start with the ant mounds on other planets, they can just continue to spread across the galaxy. Right. Yeah, maybe it's considered a great prize to kidnap one of these guys, because then if you know the right kind of torture techniques, you can use them as your hyperdrive. Right. (laughs) Very cool. So, let's see. Moving on, we still have, like, three more races to come up with. We need one more protagonist race, two more antagonist races. Okay. Go. (laughs) Uh, I think one should be uh, just a regular biped race, smooth skin. It has wings or wing-like mass between its arms and its sides, so it could, like, either glide or fly. Oh, cool. They're silicon-based rather than carbon-based. But they're not necessarily rock people, per se. They're actually... Correct. It's more like they're... It's a different element that's Correct. based off their... Uh, okay. Yep. So what may be poison to us is not poison to them, or what is not poison to us is poison to them. Do they have to live in a different kind of environment, or is nope. oxygen okay? Oxygen is fine. Okay. Are these kind of leathery wings, then, that they have? Are they? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's made up okay. of their skin. 
and uh, so these guys have developed interstellar travel. We need to get a race in here that does the traditional sort of ships and lasers thing. Oh, yeah. Thing. I could so definitely I guess see these guys to be these that. guys? Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, short people, their race doesn't get over five feet tall. Okay. Maybe they had a number of engineers who were able to make these mm-hmm. aerodynamic vehicles, which they would probably okay. have a greater grasp of aerodynamics. Yep. But everything is on a smaller scale. You know, they don't build things yeah, on... Yeah. I expect their ships probably look more aerodynamic than... Uh, Correct. Then uh, what would be considered... Low profile, let's put it yeah. that way. So it's maybe it's like there's a, a cone coming at you or something kind <laughs> of thing. An elongated cone or something. Yeah. They have tools. They have independent mind, think, you know, that sort of thing. And I could see them with more of a communal, like, socialism type thing, where they all benefit one another Okay. for the whole. You said they have smooth skin. Do we know kind of what the colors range from? Yep, they can range from gray to green to almost like a purple, a light purple. Blue would not be in one of their colors. Gray, green, or purple. And uh, as they age, they get like freckles, larger freckles. That are, These are like an inch in diameter. Do they have the standard kind of two eyes, one nose, one oh, mouth yeah. type thing? Yep. Uh, two, do they have hair? No. This race is all about no hair. Okay. No furry stuff anywhere. All right. So if you were looking at them from the front, they just basically kind of look like, aside from the wings, they kind of look like sort of short, purple, bald humans? Yeah. Or, okay. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Mm. Cool. I can see that being another protagonist race mm-hmm. uh, easily enough. Definitely. Okay. Now, at this point, we just need two more antagonist races. Sweet. If our purple humanoids are communist, communal, do they initially think that the ant people are kind of cool because they're also kind <laughs> of communal? But then sort of get the tables turned on them. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling that maybe initially they were going to invite the ant people into their club and then they were betrayed. They found out something terrible about them, like they were off doing bad things. Bad things. Yeah, they were doing torture experiments or something. uh, Well, it's not their fault that they're always hungry. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And they happen to like silicon. Yeah, so it's entirely possible that these guys thought they were going to be able to be allies with the ant folk, but they can't. So two more antagonist races. I'm what thinking we... a, a race of people from a very high-gravity planet, so that on most planets they would be super strong. And we're not talking Superman strong, okay? But Vulcan strong. Yeah, Vulcan or maybe strong. more than that. Maybe they're a humanoid that has adapted to uh, 10 or 20 times higher gravity than Earth. So maybe they're dwarfish. I see them almost, uh, yeah, maybe maybe a dwarven kind of <gasps> race, almost. For some Stop. reason, when you were talking about this, I was thinking about DC Comics um, Apocalypse a little bit. It's funny kind of, you say that, because in Marvel Comics, they had the Guardians of the Galaxy, and each one of them was supposed to come from a different one of the planets in our solar system. And the dude that was from Jupiter... He looked like a human, but he was like three times as wide. And so it was almost like you took a human and mushed him, but he was still six feet tall. But he was just like super duper wide. And that was kind of how they did Jupiter with gravity. But Jupiter is a a gas giant. I'm not sure how they ever had anybody coming from there. For some reason, I was just as John was talking, I was seeing these guys. Maybe they look kind of rocky or craggy. They're not, but they kind of maybe look that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like they uh, have an extra. Yeah, they have an exoskeleton as well as a endoskeleton skeleton too oh okay it's kind of a so double a, it's an adaptation. An extra skeleton yeah it's an adaptation so they may actually be able to survive in space Ooh. they take their spacesuits with them are they lobster people Ooh, mm. now that's an interesting something like that i could see that lobster thermidor i know i mean i kind of like the idea of dwarf folk at the very least for right. okay. yeah. so, so dwarven but with a carapace almost it's like they have armor yeah oh, yeah definitely 
that's yep. uh, you know it's like they have built on to armor and they can actually survive in space yeah. because space is cold and got radiation all that stuff so you have to have maybe their plant is mostly aquatic and so not only that but they um can hang on to air a lot longer because they have to spend so much time underwater. So they have limited ability to go in space until they run out of air, but they won't die just because of the vacuum. Yeah, that works. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm actually thinking about them. Maybe they're like crustacean dwarves. Yes. So they are lobster-like in that respect, then. Why they hate everybody else, I'm not sure yet. Oh, well, that's easy to come up with, I'm sure. <laughs> um, Always hate strong and you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the smooth humanoids were basically fishing their planet to supply their interplanetary <laughs> red lobsters. Well, I can see these guys being, to a certain extent, they're about controlling their environment because I can see their home environment being very harsh. And uh, being high gravity, they had to always fight to be able to even, you know, move. <laughs> right, right. Actually getting up out of the water and building ships takes a great deal of determination. Right, and um, their ships are probably huge because you're going to have to blast out of that gravity well. So once you get away, they probably move very, very fast. Yeah, Amazingly then fast. In, then you run into relativity and all that stuff, but hey, shh. No, we, we don't need that. Yeah, I mean, they probably have something like a drive of the same type that the flying people have, or something similar, rather. Right. Uh, as far as that kind of technology. Faster than light technology of some kind. Right. That they can use to do it, hyperdrive or and whatever you want. I could see conflict having come to them. They maybe invited an ambassador on board. Yeah. They took off, and they don't pay any attention to the inertia mm-hmm. of rocketing the ship to a high speed because they're ready for it and everybody just kind of splashes. (laughs) I almost also kind of like the idea that maybe as a cultural thing, cultural inertia in a way is maybe uh, Mm. something that's uh, kind of big with them. So there's this thing where they're like, their leaders have this basic assumption that everything will fall under their rule. Maybe they have a very imperial attitude where they come out and they're like, ah, good to see you, new species. You will be called species X-10 and you will have the great privilege of serving our emperor. Or they'll go up to new species and go, okay, uh, looks like on the current schedule, we're going to take you over in about 78 years. Give or take, how's that work for you? Okay, okay. Yes. At your present level of efficiency, I see that we will probably be conquering you within the next quarter century. Unless you have something better to offer, do you? No? All right. Well, be seeing you soon. We'll be seeing you soon. <laughs> or maybe not. As you drift through space after we've blasted your ship apart. Is that, no, is that all it, you have in your it, fleet, really? Yeah. Right, and, it, and it's all kind of matter-of-fact. Yeah. It's not malicious. It's the way the world works. And yes, exactly. It's like everything must be ordered, and we we will order it. I like that very much. Okay, very cool. And then we need one more. One more species. Oh, do we? We need one more? We've got three protagonists and two antagonist species. Unless you just want to leave it at two antagonist species, which I'm fine with that too. Sure, we can sure. have some sort of space-born an antagonist that doesn't have an intelligence behind it, you know? Space sharks or... Like a yes. natural predator for everyone to look out for. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. It's something that can survive out in space that if you come across it, everybody goes on red alert. All right. Let's see here now. Maybe most of the races don't like our Mercury people and our mm. ant people don't really have spaceships. But when 
the furry dudes came to their planet. Maybe the antagonist races jumped on them, and they have almost enslaved that race and said, you're how we're going to get around from now on. And maybe that's the major means of travel is actually more of a wormhole teleportation kind of thing. But then there's that one race that actually does have ships and flies around. I'm thinking that maybe the ant folk have been doing that in secret. Enslaving the furry dudes. Enslaving the furry tripod dudes. Yeah, tripod dudes. Okay. Okay. And maybe the ant folk were going to be part of this alliance, but then they discovered that they'd been doing this. Yes. Perhaps the explanation that they had been giving for their means of interstellar travel was false. <laughs> oh, yes. And that actually they were using these tripods to uh, enslaved to get around. You go down to their engineering section in one of their ships, and it's just one of these things strapped into a chair. Wow. Right. That's actually pretty cool. I think, I think that'd be a great opening for a sci-fi novel. Yeah. Yep. So maybe these ant folk have, as part of their collective imperatives, it's not exactly xenophobia, but there's only so much they're going to share with outsiders about their culture. There's, and so there's they shared just enough for the people to start thinking they could trust them. But as it turns out... <laughs> So they wouldn't be seen as the scary people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Their hive mind decided that that would be the best approach with mm-hmm. the, these other races. And then they struck, or someone found out maybe they were going to strike, and so they've now become main antagonists. Well, let us talk a little bit, uh, I think, about this alliance and how it is set up, and also where it is set up. Is there a central location where these folks will gather the central offices of this alliance? Is it on a space station of some kind, or is it on one of these guys' planets? I think it would be on a mutual planet that they have discovered between their regions where they are working with and building in conjunction with the other Alliance members. That way it's neutral territory. It's not someone else's home world, so to speak, but they all have a vested interest to build. I would say there is no intelligent life, but there's plenty of resources for them to build and whatnot. Okay, so let's say they've got their base. I guess we're going to need to figure out now, with these guys coming together, what their objective is. Do you think that they were kind of trying to band together again the crustacean dwarves initially. Maybe originally, when the ant people were going to be part of it, they were kind of playing the dwarf folk as built up as maybe bigger villains than they really are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, not to say they're not significant villains, but that maybe it was this mutual defense thing. Whereas the dwarf people are going to tell you they're taking over, the ant people just kind of do it under they, the radar. <laughs> exactly. They're here, all of a sudden they multiply, and then the next thing you know, you can't get them off your planet. You're like, Son yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the two faces yeah. with exoskeletons kind of get together. Well, maybe. I like to think that they fight each other, too. So they're, they're like adversaries against each other and against all the protagonist races? Yeah. yeah, I was thinking that maybe these crustacean dwarf folk have pretty wide range, pretty wide reach, and so they are a fairly constant threat. But at the same time, maybe they were not responsible for everything that the ant folk said that they were responsible for, if you take my meaning. They were using them as scapegoats up until the point when it was discovered what the ant people were really doing. Maybe the ant folk said, hey, the dwarf crustaceans are going to do all this stuff. We'll come and be your bodyguards. Put us on your planet. Yeah. And we'll help defend you because we're tough. And then once they got there, they realized that a lot of the stuff the ant people said the dwarf crustaceans were doing was actually the ant people were doing it as a big con. Yes, totally. And actually, yeah, I like that idea that maybe they're posing as bodyguards. That means it's kind of like they seem like a proud warrior race. But in fact, they're just a let us multiply and take over everything, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right, it's their nature. That's their... Yeah. Yeah, That's their imperative. 
Yeah, maybe it's like eventually they, they finally figure out, oh, they're getting stronger instructions from their hive mind than we originally realized. <laughs> <laughs> and the people that discovered it were the water people. Because they're telepathic and they can pick yeah. up yeah. signals. Yeah, yeah. They, they picked yeah up that's on, true. They're, yeah, they were able to pick the... up the other telepathy that was going on. So they're like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sub-signal in here. Why do I hear a tripod screaming on their ship? What? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not quite that simple, but yeah, something where they figured it out. Or maybe the ants don't see anything wrong with it. Right. They're like, but yeah. that's how we get around. Yeah. <laughs> Most well, evil characters do not think they're evil. Yeah, totally. We've talked a little bit about what their various societies are like, so I think we're good there for most of them. Let's see. The tripods are kind of more like a democracy. The winged folk are kind of more socialist. The mercury folk, we didn't really determine what their society is like, but it's very weird, so it's hard to say. It's almost like it's a collective consciousness, but I don't know. What would they, Do they have a leader, or do they all just act at once? If they do, it hasn't been seen. It keeps itself well hidden, well protected. And do they live in harmony or is are there divisions in their society or I would think they'd have to be all on one influence. Yeah. To be able to put that much determination together, to be able to communicate across a section of the galaxy, then yeah, I'd, I'd definitely say they'd probably have to be fairly together on these things. Mm-hmm. They've got to be a collective of some sort. Mm-hmm. They just Maybe have they... a will yeah. as a race. Yeah, there's got to be something like that where there's a sharing that goes on. Maybe that is kind of a big thing for them where they can voluntarily share consciousness with each other. And they're kind of just brought up doing that. And so if you split off, later on you come back, you just absorb yourself back into the... Yeah. And that information you've gained is shared amongst the rest. Right. Yes. It's almost kind of like they are also a hive mind. It's like we have two Mm -hmm. hive mind species, really. Whereas the other race is more like ants. Because I'm trying to get a a better mental picture here. Mm -hmm. Is there some kind of thing we could base these guys off of. Do all hives operate the same way, or is there variation? I'm, I am not a biologist. <laughs> well, if they're all microorganisms and they inhabit a liquid environment, they could almost communicate chemically like bacteria do. You know, that's how bacteria share information. The only thing is that they're microorganisms. I don't know how they've achieved higher consciousness. That's one of the first things we said. When a bunch of them get together, they have greater consciousness. Right. So that's why they're able to share it. That makes sense. It's kind of, I guess, maybe like a telepathic net in whatever the body of water is, however big the container of mercury is, and that eventually the mental power gets to the point that they can broadcast telepathically and such as well. But, but then, they, like I said, they were also able to get to the point they were able to form these bodies to go out up onto the land and build stuff and all that, so they have the communication mercury array a, and all that. Mercury is a good conductor, so the Mercury people sort of probably developed a, their communication and their speaking probably is oh. in, in some sort of electrical yeah. synapse. I think maybe they I know it's strange to say this about microorganisms, but are they like, maybe they're part energy? Or they can yeah, induce the pulses. Yeah. Uh, that sounds cool. I like that. There's a lot you can do with that, actually. Maybe they become sort of billions and billions of them become synapses. Yeah, almost. yeah, exactly. Maybe it's like a group meritocracy. Meritocracy. Explain. Your level in society is based entirely upon your contribution to it. It's based oh. entirely on merit. What you do and what you produce for society... Gains you your I position. Think. Okay. Yes. And it's actually kind of strange to say there's one of them in charge. There isn't just one of them in charge. That's impossible. The body of Mercury that's in charge is the one that has done the most. 
So it's like they've got a uh, a foreman or a uh, a head honcho, and that's their drive. That's their ambition is to see who can get yeah. the most for their society. All right. Now the ant folk, we kind of talked a little bit about their drives, although they seem very sneaky at this point. So is it guided by a single intelligence? Is there like a queen somewhere on their planet that does this, or how do we think this works? She's probably the one that's kind of overall shaping and making priorities, but probably the entire race is the thing. I like the queen aspect. It's like the Borg. It's, yeah. It's a collective, but it's driven by a yeah, totally. individual's desire. <laughs> yeah, basically. Was, even though you think, oh, we're a collective. Not really. And let's see, the crustacean dwarves, we decided that was an empire, so that's simple enough. They have an emperor. Yep. The space sharks do not need a society. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta do it like space shark. <laughs> yes, space shark. So let's see. Okay, so we have one event that's taken place. We know for sure that happened fairly recently. I'm thinking, and that is the betrayal of the ant folk. Dun dun dun. Okay, first of all, how long ago did the betrayal take place? Not long. I'd say within a generation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of within a generation. That's good. Okay. It gives us, it's within 20 years, basically. If we're assuming human generations is just a, a measuring stick for this. So something like within the last 20 years, there was betrayal by the ants. Do we want anything major to have happened since then? Any major big things that stood out? Or do we want to go back? Would it be easier for us to there, go back? I think there have been this? attacks by the shark. Well, like an organized attack is like maybe are the... Uh, I don't it, think anybody is, knows, but yeah, it seems... Maybe the ants have figured out how to point the sharks at something. Yeah. Ooh. I was thinking, yeah, one of the races might have figured that out, either the ant folk or the dwarf folk. Maybe the, uh, it would be more like the dwarf folk to do yeah, that. Yeah, you think maybe, think maybe the dwarf folk are learning to control yeah, the sharks? Leaving the space sharks. blood trails. Awesome. They haven't tracked it back to the dwarfy people. Okay. But right now, maybe they're just terrified that the sharks are becoming more organized. Right. Or that maybe. the attacks have become more frequent, let's put it that way. I wouldn't say organized. organized. But that seems to have been hitting the alliance people. So it could be an accident and it might not be. Now, are these shark attacks that have been going on the first sign of them or were they always around? Well, I thought they would have always been around but very, very, very rare. rare. Almost a right. legend. And so then these supposedly legendary things have started showing up. Right. Mm -hmm. How big are these shark things? Huge. I mean, they have to be something that could threaten a starship, so... Maybe about the size of a ship? A small yeah, moon, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a moon. <laughs> It's a shark. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the freaking lasers. So maybe like something about the size of a... Uh, like a submarine. Maybe something a little bigger than that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking maybe basically something about the size of uh, a battleship would be on Earth. Maybe a little smaller than a battleship, but you know. So maybe then something between the size of a freighter type thing and a warship type thing. Right. And maybe they're somehow related to the uh, tripod people that can warp space. Huh. There might be some link there because they yeah. can travel in interstellar distances without... Maybe that's why it was a legend. They weren't in this dimension, and they are now. Maybe the tripod people are the reason that they're there. Left a hole open or something. The more times they fold space, the more sharks show up. That actually points to the thought that maybe the ant people actually are responsible for letting them out, but they may still be using the dwarves as a scapegoat. <laughs> the dwarves are trying to learn how to control them. <laughs> uh. 
<laughs> so eventually, the good guys will figure out how to turn the dwarves against the ant people. Like, again, I think that's probably been happening, but I like to think that maybe they'll have to get into an alliance with the dwarves mm-hmm. to eventually get rid of the ant person problem. I think that might be an interesting thing that might end up having to happen. Either that or, you know. Yeah, um, no, I think you're right. I think that's that's it. That when you force the tripod people to kind of fold space, bad things can happen because they don't do the proper exiting and entry kind of manipulations. Mm -hmm. So let us then, as far as events go, let's go back before the ant betrayal. We have the event of the formation of the... Alliance. The formation of the alliance. We need to figure out kind of what spurred that, or uh, if there was something that happened before then that maybe got them thinking about it. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. No, we, it was the threat of the dwarf folk. They're trying to uh, battle back against their spreading empire. So five generations, hundred years. The alliance being formed. Yeah. I think we were kind of implying that this has happened fairly recently. So maybe I want to say maybe like three generations, like sixty years. Okay. So that it's still fairly new, but it's been happening long enough for people to have had grandparents who were involved in the thing. There may be some folks that are still around from that time that are going to be really old at this point. Maybe not the tripod folk. I have a feeling they're long-lived. So prior to that, we have an era of the Dwarf Empire. I like that idea that maybe we have the era of the Dwarf Empire and the ant folk got into it because they looked like the underdog trying to fight back against them. Right. And so it was like, oh, here, we'll help you out. And then it got to the point it was like, oh, crap, we shouldn't have helped them out. <laughs> Is there, like, any other early events we want to have occurred? I'm curious if something really bad happened to the ant people's planet. Give them a reason why they're really working on moving on to other worlds. Did they have, like, a some kind of a big disaster, like an asteroid strike or something, and it's sort of forced them to look elsewhere for places to make ant mounds? Who stuck a stick in the hive and stirred? That works. And again, then the obvious choice there might be the dwarf people. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did something and they were just negligent and they were out trying to order the asteroid field or something <laughs> and an asteroid hit their planet. Maybe Ooh. something like that might have happened. It was a terrible mistake, but they were considering the ant folk beneath their notice and that was a big mistake. But any major events back then that were taking place with the Mercury folk or the tripods or the winged folk? The Mercury folk, I'm guessing, are the ones they made contact with last just through the psychic thing. Is that what we're saying? So that they're new to the whole area? I mean, it's still been, you know, they've been around for at least, I'd say probably a hundred years as far as people's perceptions go, as far as being in contact with the other folk. But maybe first contact for them only happened like a hundred years ago or so, maybe a little longer for the other folk being able to perceive them or their transmissions, I should say. Didn't we say that maybe what's happening largely is they don't really have their own interstellar travel, but it's kind of metal or whatever. They could be ageless. They might spurt a stream of mercury out Mm. Yeah, that's, that's true. what I was thinking. Is that okay? So maybe it was uh, they've been around for a very long time, and just now, uh, as far as maybe the winged folk are concerned, they're wandering around. They're like, oh, okay, well, that's we're finally going to get in touch with these people, and then they do, and then they get in touch with the tripods, and they all meet, and they decide, okay, let's start an alliance. Let's fight back against up. these because these ant folk are getting horribly oppressed, and we need to stop things like that from happening. <laughs> <laughs> Gathered together from the cosmic forces of the universe. Traditionally, have there been any major conflict? in the past with the winged folk and anyone else? I wouldn't think so. I think they're mostly a uh, neutral or good-natured folk. So they don't really have issues with anyone, but they can certainly see the issues between right and wrong. So they know what's going on and why the dwarf frustrations should be 
Yeah, not trusted. Yeah, and also part of the reason I ask is that most of what I'm looking at is I've seen we've been talking about the ant folk and the dwarf folk oppressing each other. And we've talked a little bit about the ant folk oppressing the tripods in secret. But what I'm thinking is motivations for members of these protagonist races, right? Right. Mm -hmm. What has affected them to the point that they want to put this together and actually make this work? I still think it would be the fear of being taken over by either of the antagonist race. I'm thinking the ants are already on all the different planets, and they've had to ally to try to figure out what can they do to get together to reclaim their worlds. Okay, so maybe it's just been the major threat that all three of these protagonist races have been fighting against. Maybe has been nominally the dwarf folk and then now also the ant folk as of like 20 years ago. Okay, that makes sense. Are there any other events we want to throw into the timeline before we look at points of interest and ships? I think it's good for now. Okay. Actually, yeah, let's just finish out talking about the ship technology just to make sure we've got that straight. We've talked about already about how the tripods do it, and their vessels primarily are going to look like uh, just big sort of rocket-type things? or Yeah, I think so. By comparison to any of the other really star-faring races, they're going to look fairly primitive. Like okay. a trash can? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be fancy or... It's yeah. big and square and kind of clunky. Right. Sure, okay. So that's their ships, and the winged folk have, we talked about, aerodynamic looking oh, yeah. ships, so the things that are very pretty, but they're kind of the more <laughs> art-type people. They have very uh, skillful hands for creation and stuff like that, a very open mind yeah. as far as that goes. So they employ things like faster-than-light drives, or uh, they have a means of interstellar travel. We just need to figure oh, out yeah. what it is. Yeah, I think some sort of FTL warpish. So something that does like a localized warping of space, kind of like the different warp factors in Star Trek? Right. Sure, sure. So yeah. they're still technically... They right, they're pull. moving through space. Oh, yeah. But yeah. They're moving, yeah, they're moving through, space. through space. Their speeds far out distance everyone else's, at least for the protagonist. That's a definite, yeah. except for the folding of space. Right. Yeah. They have the fastest ships. They can turn on a dime, that sort of thing. And that's the interesting thing, because they look more impressive, but then uh, the tripods vessels can actually go really far, because they just, <laughs> if you've got one of them on your ship, and they're connected to the right bits, they just focus on a star far distant, and you're there. Right. Yep. Now, did we decide that the Mercury folk have no ship? They just transmit, or do they have ships? To me, it seems like they would kind of piggyback. Like, somebody comes to visit their planet, and they just kind of attach to it and go, bing, okay, we're out of here, you know? Yeah, I can kind of see that. I like the idea that they have a big communication array of some kind, that people will come down and actually plan to pick them up and stuff like that. (laughs) Sure, but yeah, I like that, where they, uh, they do the short distance as well as the fold of space. They need help with both. But uh, I think probably also their major contribution is that they're really good at helping the races communicate with each other. Correct. And And they're the oldest race. I'd say that where the others have, they really don't die. They're just kind of always there. You know what I mean? It's a regeneration of a matrix of Mm -hmm. millions of individuals in a single small location. So, yeah. And so I think they have the most history to bring. I mean, even though it may only be their planet. But I like John's idea where they kind of spin off or they can actually or thrust one of their globules out into space and just let it go. And pretty yeah. soon it'll make its way back or whatever. And that's how okay. they learn, you know. So maybe they got to the point that they were able to create something like a launcher for it. Mm-hmm. And they launch themselves out and they can do that. Yeah, that works. Just over time they, right. they learn stuff. But it's very it. slow, non-self-propelling, yeah. you know. So you just kind of have to float there in space. And they're kind of like, until a ship comes along, whack, you know, they're picked up. <laughs> nice. No, that's good. That's very good. Okay, the ant folk 
ships. What do the ant folk ships look like? It's just a big mass. You ever seen where they uh, find a fossilized termite mound? Oh, yeah. It looks like yeah. a big bubbly thing. Very I think cool. it looks like that. And somehow they've attached some sort of reaction. Well, we determined that. But they have some sort of method of moving through space, but we found that they, you know, yeah, figured they're, out. We found that some of their more distant outposts they're getting to by tripod. Because like I like to think that they have things like plasma guns and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, but they have fossilized termite mounds in Africa that are 30 feet high and some places and it'd be very weird to see it try and get off the ground but once it's in space you're just like wow that well they probably just build it in they probably just build it in space yeah but how did they get out they look like they look like strange towered castles Uh uh-huh yeah i can definitely see it okay it's just one of those shapes that happen kind of like the ship from krull yeah there you go (laughs) i'm just a big blob well it's not exactly a blob it's definitely pointed in a certain direction well that's because of gravity Uh, but but yeah but just yeah, turn it on its side, turn it upside down if you want. I mean, it it has yeah. no forward, back, up, down to me. Well, but well, it, it's yeah. going to have something at the bottom to... to yeah, it's, it's got to have a propulsion with. system. Right, but... Yeah. I think what we're talking about here is they actually build the thing probably out of the same stuff that spaceships normally get built out of. But are we saying the aesthetic is like a mound, or is yeah. it literally... Yeah. They make these things actually, out of no, I think that no. Really, I think they make it out of whatever, you know, stone or metal or whatever. But, yeah, they somehow rocketed it into space. They fashion it after what they know. That's what yeah. their hives look like or their, right. their sure. domiciles, you know. But it's got to be much bigger than that because, you, yeah. I mean, the ants are, we figured, are two or three feet, right? Or yeah. More. yeah. Do they go up on hind legs? How many legs do these things have? Six legs? or? Six. Uh, I think they're just big ants. Oh, they don't use weapons or tools of any sort? I don't know. Well, I'm kind of thinking of something like, to borrow once more from D&D, I'm thinking about something like Formians. Yeah, Formians. Um, where it's like, they look like ants that are up on their hind legs, but they kind of bend sort of around the waist. That Mm -hmm. works. Yeah. So they have a a torso, and then, but when the torso stops, you've got the abdomen coming out back behind them, with the legs heading toward the ground. There's four legs on the ground, and two they use for tools and whatnot. Correct. Yeah, four legs on the ground, two legs in the air that are actually more hand-like. They'd still have appendages, like three. Well, yeah. A thumb and two fingers or something like that, an opposable digit. Yeah. I'm thinking that maybe they do have something that's maybe like faster-than-light drive, but it's probably not very effective on its own. It's probably something where they can't get anywhere near the speeds that the winged folk can. Their max is like, what, warp three? I think maybe like just warp one or two. There you go. uh, They go pretty slowly. I mean, it has to be something where they've spread out enough, but they got to spread out more once they started kidnapping the tripods. Now, the crustacean dwarf ships, we need to kind of figure out what those are like. I kind of like the idea of them being very wide and ornate. Like a hammer? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah boom! Like uh, Built for ramming yeah. speed. Ramming speed! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> they have a reinforced front so that they just ram other ships to disable them. I definitely also think that they have launchers where they literally throw their own people at. People. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. That is their... They have, the, like, torpedo tubes, but it's actually your... Launching... Uh, load Dwarf 1 and 2. <laughs> Fire! Yeah, they've never been so glad to be named Dwarf 37. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They all draw straws at the beginning of battle. How come I've got to be dwarf number one? It's an honor to be dwarf number one, because you're the first one over there. The one who's got like 36 is like, man, I'll never get over there. 
It's not a round number either, so that probably bothers them. Um, <laughs> a question about biology. They can survive the vacuum of space, which is cool, but do they need oxygen of some kind? I know that normally they're able to get oxygen out of water and then also probably out of the air. Is I would, it so something where they can just hold their breath for a very long time? or I would say a good, what, two to three hours, right? That can work, yeah. They have very powerful lungs. <laughs> not, it's not even lungs at all. It's just they well, yeah. stop breathing. They just, oh, yeah, they're they in just, the vacuum they, of space anyway. What maybe they their could... bodies process oxygen in a different way, or whatever it is they breathe, which they are able to extract from the water through something that maybe is, I don't know if it'd be a gill-type thing or not. I think their skin can actually do it. That's the reason oh, so, they're... So kind of osmotic? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool, actually. One way to disable them is cover them in goo. <laughs> then they can't breathe. They suffocate. <laughs> <laughs> No, don't cover them with mercury, people, for goodness sake. There you go. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> you cover them with mercury, they're going to have some serious problems. They, that's the reason they probably hate the mercury people. Is one of them got yeah. wrapped up or, you know, that's, that's uh, the way that they defend against them. On their list of things to do, they probably have eradicate mercury people because it's perceived just their existence as a threat to them. So that's good. So they have these, I guess, sort of wide kind of hammer-type ships. There you go. Maybe we could call them hammer ships. I don't know. So I guess they'd look kind of like bricks. Flying bricks. <laughs> yeah, big flying bricks. And uh, I think we said something earlier that maybe they have a moderately good faster-than-light drive where it's like they have trouble breaking out of their atmosphere, but after that they can go fairly quickly. Right. Sure. Atmosphere so travel is bad. Yeah, I got yeah. you. So maybe it's like something that, once again, not as fast as the winged folks' ships, but mm-hmm. it's uh, it's decent, but better than the uh, ant people. Ships, maybe. Oh, but they're yeah. they're really good at straight line flight. They're not great at turning. Ah, yeah. Turning takes forever. <laughs> they're like turn hard to port, and they're like half an hour later. That's why. I mean, they have to plan. They think very linearly. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes total sense. Okay. Very cool. So I think we've got that down. Is there anything we want to talk about with respect to the biology of the space sharks? We just know that they exist in space right now, and right. that they're uh, like sharks. And we figured out how big they are, but uh, we didn't figure out anything else. What do these things look like? The big question is, how do they propel themselves? There's no water. Yeah. Well, we determined that they've got some sort of relation that they have some. Well, that's right. Of... They have a dimensional thing going on, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. They come out of. They come out of the. Maybe they're able to just, in some unconscious way, grab hold of the dimensional eddies yeah. to Ooh. push themselves along. A ship is going to be in trouble if it gets close to one of these, right? Right. Oh, yeah. But are we talking like the distance of a planet? 27,000 miles, well, or... Well, what do these things do to people? Do they bite things, or do they have teeth? Or? I would imagine, yeah. Big yeah. wrecking machines. They're just a monster. <clears throat> they have physical attack. Okay, so they just come forward and they devour things, or... The winged people are like, if they see one, they just turn tail and run, because their ships would just crack under the pressure of one single attack. They'd probably split the cool-looking aircraft yeah. in half. What do these things look like? I'd say just big sharks. Yeah? Yeah, sure. Not like a whale shark. I mean, you want like a great white predator out there. I'm thinking maybe slightly rounder than a shark, and it's like no visible eyes or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it's slightly browner in color. I that. Why not? Do they have like fins, or do they have yeah, like fins, got fins and a tail? Yeah, they got fins. Okay. I was okay. thinking almost like a darker, like a mako shark has a dark top on the top. Okay. Doesn't it? It has like a darker yeah. blue type thing, so it almost matches. You can hardly see it against the starlit sky. It's winking out little stars as it travels along, but you're like, hey, what's that? And the stars are going to... I think they're totally stealthy, too, so... Oh, yeah. Normal scans don't do anything, because they're not really of this universe. Yeah, maybe they're hard to detect. Maybe they mess up scanners, at the very least. Maybe there's a way to do it, but you have to reroute a bunch of stuff to be able to figure it out so that you can't see, like, rocks in front of you. (laughs) Wow. Right. (laughs) 
So to be able to pick these things up. How do we see them then? How do people know to get away? They don't. That's been the problem, perhaps. Until the thing is like right at their doorstep and they're like, oh my God. Like, where did the stars go? Oh, crap! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess these things have really, really strong teeth or something that it can use to... Sure, why not? I mean, the teeth have got to be what... If it's a, the size of a battleship, the yeah. teeth are at least the size of uh, buses... Not buses, but maybe like a Volkswagen? Maybe they take these things and process them for energy. All organisms do that, but you yeah. know what I mean. <laughs> Actually, more directly drain their electrical energy and then just convert any mass then into energy in mm. some strange dimensional way. That works. Okay, so, points of interest. Are there any important locations we want there to be here? Now, we've got the one. We've got the neutral planet, where the base is. The capital of the... The capital is, yeah. Protagonist, yeah. Are there any other places where we could see, like, main action taking place? Of course, the borders between the dwarf people and uh, the Mercurial. Okay, you think they're kind of close together? Yeah. Are there any specific features out there, or just the place where their systems meet? Place where their systems meet, yeah. Where they've claimed territory, let's put it that way. So that's primarily just stuff happening along the border in space. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they have sentries out there. Well, of yep. course they'd have sentries, that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe All they right. have a battle station out there. And the Mercurials could just sit on a on an asteroid belt. They just pool together on an asteroid, a large asteroid, and just maneuver around or whatever. Anyway, um, I think yeah. a, another major contention is between a highly resourceful or resource-rich planet or solar system between the ant and the winged people. Okay. Each race wants it, and there's skirmishes fought across it. Is it a resource-rich system, or is it a... Uh, yes, okay. system. Yep. A lot of raw materials in its planets and yep. in its mm -hmm. their various hunks of rock. Yep. Is there something rare there? Oh, yeah. What kind of rare thing are we talking about? Minerals? Yeah, the flight people use a particular ore that is used in their spaceship crafting. It's not very plentiful on their planets that they own, but it's very plentiful in this system. And it's hard for them to mine it because they keep getting ambushed by the ants. By the, the ant folk. Maybe this was a problem all along, and then eventually they signed a treaty, and then they, they mm -hmm. turned on them. Yeah. That's cool. Mm -hmm. So let's see. So the mineral-rich system, uh, is it inhabited or is it... Uh, Minimal. I mean, it's like the mining areas are habitable. I think uh, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe there might be like pre-interstellar travel races might be down there, but mm -hmm. uh, they're kind of getting drawn into this, that don't okay. have their own means of space travel at this point. So that might be good. Is it like a lot of the planets in that system are rich with minerals, or is it just like one or two? Or? One or two. One or two of a like an eight-planet system. Okay. One thing I wanted to figure out was we figured out how they're different societies were organized very basically. How is the alliance organized? Ooh, council. Councilship. Equally represented by all three races? Sure. Council of nine. There you go. Three representatives from each race. Cool. I like that. And they just decide things by vote? Yep. Since the Mercurials don't communicate with vocal cords the way the furry people and the smooth people do, how do they communicate? They can probably project. It'd be like telepathically almost. Or they can have like portable arrays with them if they want to uh, <laughs> be able to project through a device of some kind, maybe. I was wondering if yeah. the Mercurial shows up and almost acts like a conductor between the three. But then the Mercury people always feel a little bit left out because the smooth people and the furry people can kind of talk offline. And yeah. maybe that's a point of contention. That's a good thought. Maybe there are some folks that think that that's not quite fair. They're kind of more just looked at as a telephone than... <laughs> 
but I mean, largely that's at a distance. Say you're in a council room on this neutral planet, and you have a representative from Mercurial. each of the species in there. The mercurial person is going, uh, person, and I say person, there are millions of them there in that space, but the representative is going to look humanoid and will perhaps have a device of some kind on them that they, through their electrical manipulation, through their consciousness array, they are able to get it to speak for them. It's a talking box. Right. There you go. So, like, when they're in immediate contact with them, I'd say there are means by which they do it. And it's just kind of the little, their talking box is just a very, very minor version of their array technology, which they've got, like, the big array down on the planet, <laughs> which I'm kind of seeing is like this weird kind of almost pseudo-crystalline giant satellite dish, or multiples of them that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, they refer to themselves in the plural? Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that prior to making first contact, they might not have had a concept of single. Of individual. <laughs> of singular, yeah, of individuals. So yeah, I'd say they definitely refer to themselves in the plural. Okay. Is there anything else we want to throw in before we uh, go to the names? Can't think of anything. Good. I'm good. Okay. What do we want to name the ant people? The Mandiblarians. That's not bad. I assume that they have mandibles. Mm-hmm. Do we like Mandiblarians? Sure. Of course. So the Mandiblarians, what would the name of their planet be? I guess there's the question of what do the ants call their world, and then what do all the other races call their world? The other races might call it the hive world, because it's just a one big hive yeah. been there. But like, what do the Mandiblarians call their own world? And it's more like kind of when someone hears them say their world name and what they turn it into. I think we're largely looking at it from the perspective of these three species. Probably more the winged folk ever than anyone else, because those are the ones that are closest to human, and it's probably the ones whose perspective we can match best. But what do we call their home world? We can call it the hive world. I'm totally down with that. But is there a proper name that we give it? Try something with C, like uh, Corhymenoptera. Hymenoptera? Hymenoptera. That's the genus name of the ants. Hymenoptera is ants, wasps, and yellow jackets. Something we can always do is drift it a little bit, so it's something that's similar. If we were to, I know Kent was wanting something sea-like, maybe if we named it like Senoptera. Optera was the name of the Invid homeworld on Robotech, so be careful. Okay, so so Sentera? Yeah, Sentera sounds Sounds great. Right now I'm spelling it C-E-N-T-E-R-A. What do we want to name the Mercurials? I like the Mercurials already. Just kind of calling them that? Mm -hmm. We actually could call them that, just simply because Mercury is an element. Okay. And they would have probably never come up with really a name for themselves, because that's not how they think about it. I think they probably just adopted the name Mercurials, because it's what people were calling them. What is their planet called, though? Ginfana. I think Mercury is taken. (laughs) Mercury is taken, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, Kent, you just said what? Ginfana? Ginfana. G-Y-N-F-A-N-A. Okay. The tripods, what do we want to call them? Hmm. These three-legged, melon-headed, slightly furry creatures from Uh, another dimension. (laughs) From another dimension. The Mandelbrot? That's a little close to Mandiblarians. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. true. But what was that word again? It's Mandelbrot. It's the Mandelbrot. That's the chaos theory, yeah. So maybe something like Delbrot. I don't know if I just like Brot, but maybe like Delbrot. Yeah, that works. That That works. If you call them the Brot, people are going to think they're German hot dogs. Exactly. (laughs) That is precisely the issue. (laughs) So maybe like D-E-L-B-E-R-O-T? Yeah. Sounds good. Actually, let's add an H, Delbrot. At the end? 
Yeah. Delbaroth, does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we decided if they have a planet or if it's another thing. Uh, I'm sure they uh, have a planet, but I don't yeah. think it's... I guess, yeah, they have a planet, it's just that it's got a weird dimensional thing about it where it's right. kind of a gateway also, or there's a gateway on it. Right. Um, what do we want to call that planet? Androphus. Kind of like Andromeda, but go with Androphus. A-N-D-R-O-P-H-I-S. Actually, what if we change the I to a Y? Okay. P-H-Y-S? Yeah. Okay. Androphus. Androphus. What do we want to call the winged folk? I like sky something. The sketh? That works, I guess. Sketh? Mm-hmm. Is that like S-K-E-T-H? Uh-huh. I can see that. And their planet, their homeworld. We could do it something where it's like their homeworld is like Skethalon or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That works. Because just just their race is just a shortened thing of their planet. I like that. Okay. What do we want to call the armored dwarves? I think like the manifold. Manifold, like the manifold, like an engine. a car. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's like that, but that's a, it's a geometric construct. I want some sort of geometry kind of. Oh, okay. Or the Gaussian. Yeah. Gaussian. That sounds interesting. There's a Gaussian curvature. How is that spelled? G a u s s i a n. And so their home planet is Lagasia. Lagasia. They're French. That's it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can I get you to spell Gaussian one more time? G a u S-S-I-A-N. For the purpose of this, would it be a problem if we change it to, like, E-A-N? That's fine. Not at all. And we want to name their planet... Legacia. Legacia? Mm-hmm. Sure. Are we talking L-E-L-I? I did it L-A. Legacia. L-A works, actually. Okay, what do we want to call the space sharks? What's the devourer of... Shiva. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they even start both start with S-H, which is kind of cool. So the Shivans... Well, that exists in Magic the Gathering, but I'm looking for things that are similar. I want to call them something, do something a little weird, like the Shivanodes or something like that, unless that sounds too weird. Like the Shivanodes or the Shivadons or... Oh, Shivadons. Sound real prehistoric. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going for. Yeah. Okay. Like a, like a giant dinosaur or an ancient dinosaur, yep. Shivadon. Like S-H-I-V-O-D-O-N? Sure. Yep. All right. Okay, we need to name the planet where the capital is. Something central. Let's see if we can do... Prime something. Ooh, I like Prime. Uh, Yeah, well, yeah, it could be something Prime, and just the first name is the name of the star. I'm I'm almost wanting to go back to Latin or something and do something like Pax Prime or something. Like a Condus Prime? A-C-O-N-D-U-S? Yep, Condus Prime. Okay, what do we want to name this Alliance Federation thingy? How about Occupy a Condus Prime? <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> well, if we're going to use Acondus, why not Acondus Corporation? Not really well, go after like a federation title or just use a corporate. Or just the corporation. That actually makes it sound more like more of a business than it is. I mean, this is something that's more like a uh, like a governing body in a way or a kind of UN. United Federation of Acondus? The Interstellar Federation. That's not bad. Interstellar's not okay. Interstellar Federation. A lot of people don't use Interstellar for some reason. Yeah, so I think that'll be fine. The Interstellar Federation. Okay. Now we talked about the Mercurials having a single body that's like the smartest one, the head of their meritocracy at their center. And when I say the smartest one, again, I mean the biggest collection of them, or the, the collection ocean. of them that's done the most. Maybe Correct. there's the ocean. Could be. And then it goes down from there, so ocean to... Oh, okay, so the head is called the ocean because it's the ocean? Go. I like that. Yeah, actually, I like that too. The ocean. You've received, the ocean. You've received our orders from the ocean. Right. Yes. The ocean <laughs> to the sea to the... The ocean has spoken. The head of the tripod democracy, or the Delbaroth democracy, the head of that, what would that be called? The phase? 
Well, there's phasing involved, certainly. It's like the high phase or something. Something like that, yeah. The grand phase. The grand phase. So it's interesting because then it's like it's a democracy, and so the grand phase is elected, but it's like there's a certain amount of pomp and circumstance around the... uh, Mm -hmm. Or the continuous phase or the... The grand phase of the Delbaroth continuum. The Skeff have a socialist society. Mm -hmm. So do they have, what, a chairman or something like a chairperson? Uh, yeah. Or a premier? The premier, actually, sounds like that might work. Do we want to go with that? Sure. The ant folk, the Mandibularians, I guess they would have a queen. They have a queen or... Mm -hmm. And then the uh, the dwarf folk have an emperor. Emperor, yep. So we're good there. Now, we're getting into terrain features real quick, or areas, points of interest, just names we need to throw out for those. First of all, that area along the border, between the Gaussian and the Mercurials, is there a name for that zone? Not particularly. So that's just like the front. Okay, yeah. The front of the front. front of conflict. I think we had said that the Gaussian have a battle station there. Do we want yes. to name that? Something like a hammer, or a... Yes. Yeah. Anvil station, Anvil, maybe. yeah. Yeah, there you go. yeah, that works. Anvil 1. Anvil one. anvil 1, yes. Anvil 1 station. <laughs> Don't want to get caught between the hammer and the anvil. That's right. <laughs> because their ships are the hammer ships. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> their ships are the hammers and their stations are the anvils. Nope. <laughs> I love it. Okay, right. the system that is rich and Ooh. in contention. What do we want to name that system? Or more specifically, it's star or stars. Is it like a single yeah, star single or star. a binary star? Okay. Single star. Zontiel. Z-O-N-T-I-L. Zontiel star. Who named that, actually? I'm curious. The uh, Sketh did. Maybe it's like someone in their history is mm-hmm. a great explorer. What, that which is right now the Council of Nine. What do we want to call that ruling council? I know we were talking about calling them the Council of Nine, and there are probably people who call them the Council of Nine, but officially we were saying it would probably have a different name because they want to make sure there's room to add more later. Correct. Do we just call it the Council, or is it the Council of Acondus, or uh, I think Council works. The Interstellar Council? Yeah, yeah. I like Interstellar Council. Okay. Interstellar High Council. You want to? Do we give it a, a higher station? Well, are they more like the UN, or are they actually in charge? They would be in charge if they have a good deal of authority over their members. Then I would go with High Council. Yes, let's do that then. And the last feature that uh, I thought might be cool to have a name for, which we may not actually need a name for, but just to be pointed out, is the gate on Androthis, the gateway, whatever it is, Androthis. whether it's a literal gateway or a uh, the Tripod's planet, the Delbaroth's planet, where they have their access to this other dimension. That gateway, do we want to call it something, or do we just want to call it the gateway? Did we use the Dwemer last week? Uh, I remember no. the Dwemer. Let's use the Dwemer. I like it. Maybe it doesn't look like a gate so much as it looks like an energy field. Yeah. That actually is kind of a superstitious name for it, but that works. Cool. Okay, there now, almost. Uh, the name of the whole setting. <laughs> One more thing to name. <laughs> the... the setting. Oh, yeah. What shall we name this setting? It has to have something to do with council or space sharks. Oh, boy. Anaconda <laughs> Spiral? Spiral like, is interesting. I like um, Spiral. Yeah. yeah, Spiral is good, because we're assuming that it's along a spiral arm. And Acondus, because it's the name of the neutral planet. Acondus Spiral. Acondus Spiral. Do we like that? Yeah, that works. I like it. Darren, are you happy with that? Darren? Sounds great. Okay, we now have the realm Acondus Spiral. So it is written. So it is written, so it shall be. <laughs> and this is the point at which I would ring a gong. So there we have it. 
Do we have any recommendations or any other bits of business before we go? I wanted to recommend, and I should have recommended this months ago, is a podcast by a guy named Dan Carlin, and he does a podcast called Hardcore History. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. It is the most brilliant history podcast out there. It's how history ought to be taught, (laughs) all the interesting bits and none of the tedium. It's really good. He did a a six-part series on the fall of the Roman Empire and going into all these reasons why the Roman Empire fell. It was really good. So go out and listen to it. DanCarlin.com, I think it is. Okay, very cool. So thanks very much for joining us, Darren. We really appreciated it. Yes, thank you, Darren. Thanks. And if people want to find any of your writing or if they just want to find information about you online, where should they go? DarrenKennedy.com. D-A-R-I-N-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y.com. If you type Darren Kennedy into Google, at least until June, whenever Apple takes away my website, um, (laughs) uh, I'm the first hit on Google. Then I'm going to have to start all over. But um, for now, I'm good to go. All right, cool. Awesome. Excellent. Well, that's another world in the bag, and uh, we will catch you on the flip side. Uh, say goodbye, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> we are out. So long. Thank you for listening to Crucible of Realms. Do you have comments or a question? Have you used one of our settings? Tell us about it. You can contact us at podcast at crucibleofrealms.com or leave a review for us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Or if you'd like to contact one of the hosts individually, you can find our emails on the website at crucibleofrealms.com. From there, you can check out the wiki with all the settings we've created so far. Those settings and this podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. The opening and closing theme was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. <laughs>